Hey guys, welcome back to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we dive deep into stories of Asian entrepreneurs around the world. Be sure to check out our book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, and check out our directory and marketplace at AsianHustleNetwork.com. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. If you like this podcast, don't forget to leave a five-star review. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network Podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode on the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today we have a very awesome guest. You know, her team actually reached out to us via cold email. We looked at her profile. She's amazing. She fits our podcast completely. We're going to have Chetra on the show today. Chetra, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> of course. Please tell us about yourself and your upbringing. You want to hear more about you. Yeah, so I am the co-founder at Brooklyn Deli. We make Indian sauces and condiments, and I'm also a cookbook author. I wrote a cookbook called Vibrant India, and yeah, I <laughs> that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I love that. Nice, simple, and straight to the point. Tell us about where you grew up, right? What was your upbringing like? What were some of the values that your parents installed in you that helped you, that helped you become the entrepreneur that you are today? So I grew up in Jersey and I was probably one of the only South Asian kids in in my school. And so that was kind of a large part of just like, you know, how my identity was shaped in a sense, because I kind of never really felt like I fit in, in a sense. But, you know, and I think a lot of um, kids that kind of grow up second generation too, like me, probably felt the same way. My parents were and still are very avid home cooks, and they just happened to be from two different parts of India. So I, I, we, we lived in a multicultural home in that my parents actually grew up speaking two different languages. They grew up eating different foods and had different customs. So I, I was very lucky that I got exposed to it, and I think food for us was always a central focus. And I think a way for my brother and I to connect with my parents, because it kind of bridges that cultural divide in a sense. And my parents also were, I feel like there's like two types of immigrants, you know, like the ones that are like, oh, like, you know, I never want to go back, you know, to, to where I came from. And then the others that are just like always longing for home. And I feel like my parents are the second, the latter, where they made it a point to take my brother and I to India every year. So we got to really experience culture and kind of see what they saw growing up and connect with family. But then, you know, living in Jersey, it's like, it was like any other American kid. It's a lot of pizza, bagels, you know, you had like this American side and this Indian side happening. And as far as entrepreneurialism goes, I feel like my parents are very risk averse. They're scientists. They, you know, <laughs> like a lot of, I feel like, like a lot of immigrant parents, you know, they come to this country and they want to give their children more opportunities. And and I worked in marketing for you know over a decade before I, I founded Brooklyn Deli. And to them, 
I, I think they were very scared because they were just like, you know, you had this salary, you had benefits and going from that to kind of like in the beginning, really struggling as an entrepreneur and figuring it out. I think it was hard for them to see that. But I think as time has gone on, they've gotten used to the idea. Me, thank you so much for sharing that story too. And I really like the fact that food is a common unifier in your family, right? And I feel like that's a lot, that is like similar for a lot of us out there. It's like sometimes our cultural values that we grew up here doesn't really line up with our parents. And the best way that, you know, our parents love us is that they make us food and make us, you know, they make us a bowl of fruit, you know, Totally. With encouragement is not that in common in Asian culture where it's like, good job, you know? <laughs> I think my parents right. said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like, I love you. I'm sorry. I've never even, no. <laughs> yeah. It's like they tell you they love you by cutting fruit, you know? It's exactly. like. <laughs> yeah. And it's crazy how, you know, parents are obviously very risk-averse in terms of like, they don't want you to become entrepreneurs, right? Because they know how much uncertainty that involves. But the thing is with Asian parents is that they're your biggest supporter once they see that this is a viable path, right? right? Exactly. What was that turning point for you where this became a viable path where they looked at you and the company and said, okay, like she can do this. Like she'll be able to succeed and take care of her. I think it was probably when we went national with Whole Foods where my parents were like, hmm, okay, this is looking like a real thing now. Because before, I mean, I was selling at markets all over the city and just like we were, it, it was really kind of grassroots, right? And we were getting into like small specialty stores and making our, our way that in that sense. But then when we went national with Whole Foods and we also got an account with Blue Apron, that was when I actually could start paying myself. <laughs> and that was a big step because I was self-sufficient at that point. That is, that is a major uh, milestone, by the way. So huge congrats on that. Let's talk Thanks. a little more about the hustle involved. As you mentioned earlier, you know, the grassroots stuff, getting your, your product out there. What was it like at the very beginning trying to get your product out there and combining that with your experience as a marketer for 10 years, right? How did you get people yeah. to learn about the product and obviously educate people on different flavors as well? Right. I feel like the beginning was was really tough because, you know, I came from this as a food blogger and I was making food at events and writing a cookbook. I knew nothing about selling a product to consumers in a sense. So I was lucky because my boyfriend, my husband now, he is a food packaging designer. So he was able to, he, he, he and I conceived of the brand together. And so that was like a huge leg up, I feel like, because packaging is so important with food products. But the other hurdle that we had was that I started making a char, which is a very traditional staple Indian condiment. And it is just not as known to, to a lot of people that are not South Asian. So without even knowing it, we were already, we were creating our own category. And so I think that is what I didn't realize getting into it is how much work that would be. So it, it, in the beginning, it was a lot of demoing, just getting out there. It's like, if there was an opportunity to sell the product at a street market, at an event, at anywhere, I was there because the more people that I could reach to try the product, that was, I was reaching more people 
people that I was, I could educate basically. And when you're starting out, you don't have huge marketing budgets, right? So we relied really on word of mouth and social media, you know, anything, anything and everything free (laughs) to get the word out. (laughs) That is the hustle story we love, you know, and, you know, some people look at your products nowadays at Whole Foods. They're like, wow, she must have some sort of superpower. Like she must be well connected. Her parents must be super rich. But listen to your story. It's like you're, you know, you're, you hustle, right? And that's right. so important for us to hear. Yeah, no, it is definitely all about the hustle, especially in the beginning. I mean, I'd say, yeah, we weren't profitable for the first four years. And I think that's another piece of it too, is that I still worked part-time on the side to support myself. And I was also using the advance for my cookbook. And so I... I didn't have, you know, a lot of savings and, and, and things to kind of fall back on. So I needed to be able to work on the business, but also make enough for, for myself to live. (laughs) Yeah. That's, I can't imagine how tough that is. Right. And that seems to be a common theme on this podcast too. A lot of people sort of semi making the jump, but trying to find a way to support themselves and let's dive Let's dive deeper into those moments, right? Because I feel like they're very character-defining moments where, honestly, those times suck, right? Oh, because yeah. how the hell am I going to pay this bill? Is this going to be a viable idea? You have so much doubt. And I feel like there's probably more doubt and more bad days to entrepreneurship than people think, right? Right. right. And I no, want to hear definitely. about th- that story of what you experienced. Like, what was going through your mind when you're hitting, like, these low points in your in your entrepreneur journey where it's like, damn, like, should I continue? Should I stop? Was my parents right? Like, I want to hear about those those moments. Right. Well, that, that actually is a good point. It's that, you know, when, you know, your parents are kind of like fearful of your future as well. And, and, and you're kind of looking at your, your numbers and thinking like, maybe this isn't going to work. Right. And I feel like with Brooklyn Deli, a lot of my identity is very much rolled up into what Brooklyn Deli is. You know, it's an Indian American brand. It's like a total reflection of, of who I am. So it, it's it's not just like, oh, if this this fails, like it's not a big deal. It's like a huge deal because it's like this business is a part of who I am. And we went through some really tough conversations, me and my husband, we, I think it was maybe we were two years in or three years in where it was just, and, and I was expecting a a baby at the time. And it was just kind of like, we need to make this work because we have a kid coming and it, it needs to be viable. And so we basically gave ourselves, like, I think it was that we had two trade shows coming up and we're like, okay, let's make it to those trade shows. And six months after the trade shows, see if anything pans out to, to kind of like prove that, okay, this, 
this can go on. And that was actually when we got Whole Foods and Blue Apron. And those two deals basically saved us. But, you know, going to a trade show, like there was huge, there there was definitely a huge hustle moment there. So like we had our chars, right, that we were selling. But to go to the trade show, we decided to bring a bunch of concepts. So since my husband's like this designer, he basically like sketched a bunch of like different ideas. We had like a ton, a ton of like ideas kind of floating in our heads about like other products that we wanted to put out. And one thing that we would make at home was this ketchup that we would mix with our tomato achar. So it kind of makes this like spicy ketchup that's like infused with like Indian flavors. And so that was one of the ideas that we had we'd put out there and the Whole Foods buyer came up to our table and she was like, so I really love your achars because they were already being sold in the local places. And she was like, I want to understand like what you think about taking the achars national. And at that point, we knew that selling a char on a national scale was going to be probably not the way to go because already we were having a hard time. We sold it. We could sell it to you know the buyers, but a lot of people didn't know what it was. So if it was on the shelf people didn't buy it unless I was demoing, but I couldn't be at every store all the time, nor did we have the budget to hire people to demo all over. So what we did was we told her that we love that you love our HRs, but we have a couple of more ideas that we think may be, you know, may, may work better for us since we don't have all that budget to, to do the, the demoing. And so we showed her all of these ideas and she landed on the curry ketchup idea. And she was just like, this one seems interesting to me. And so we were like, okay, cool. And she was like, okay, I'm going back to Austin. Like the next day, can you just like overnight me a sample? And we were like, okay, like we literally did not have a sample. We were in California at an Airbnb, like doing this trade show. So after like the trade show, we literally, we like ran back to the Airbnb and we're like, oh my God, we have to make this. Right. So we made, and it was so funny because my brother was there and my parents and like my, like I had had a kid by that time and we made the curry ketchup, but we made like three different versions and we were all trying them. And then we we finally like we're like this is the one so we overnighted that version to her and we got a phone call literally like after like the next day and she was just like everybody here loves it and we're gonna take it national and can you develop a curry mustard for me and we were like yes <laughs> but like you know what I mean like it's just like you you kind of have to I guess like just innovate on the fly and just kind of like think of all these different ways that you can make your business survive if it's what you really want to do. And so that's kind of an example of right there of what we did to, to keep it going. I want to say I love that story a lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, right? I think it's so crazy to hear those types of stories because it's so common, not just like among smaller entrepreneurs, but these big companies that you see, right? There's so many right. moments where all these companies might die, but I feel like <laughs> when you're all in and you feel like you have nothing to lose, you do things you'll never do. Oh yeah, definitely. Right? <laughs> like when you're feeling that desperate, you do anything you can to succeed. And that's a crazy right. moment to be in. <laughs> <laughs> I know. 
<laughs> it's like, you have to think for yourself, you know, when you're working for somebody else, it's like, I mean, at least for me, I realized this, like I didn't have as much motivation. Right. But like when your life is on the line, it's like yeah. my kid needs to eat. <laughs> oh my God. I, I don't have a kid yet, but I've been in those moments plenty of times where it's like, oh God, is Asian Hustle Network going to survive? <laughs> you <know>? Right. <laughs> but you got to continually innovate. Right. And, yeah. and just keep going. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think nowadays, I feel like in the media side, a lot of entrepreneurship is very glamorized, right? You get nice cars, nice house, overnight successes. Those are all bullshit. <laughs> it's never really the case. Right. I mean, I was just, I just remember, you know, those first few years, it was like, I ate a lot of beans and I did not buy clothes for like four years, you know? And it's like you, when you have like a passion for something, all that other yeah. stuff doesn't matter. You're just like, so focused, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that's why I probably like, I mean, I will do anything to keep Brooklyn Dolly going. Cause I love it so much, you know? Yeah. <laughs> It's crazy how you mentioned that too. I think if you really do some of the numbers and cut out the 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 want versus essentials, like it doesn't take that much to keep your year or your life going. That's the crazy right. part. But I feel like when you're oversaturated <laughs> abundance, you're like, oh, I want this, I want that, I want this nice watch, I want what this, whatever it is. Then then right. your lifestyle creep starts adding in, right? Totally. I know. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to hear about your transition to now that things are a lot more normal now, quote unquote normal. Yeah, how has, normal. <laughs> how has scaling your company been? How big is your company right now? How many employees do you have? How do you maintain culture? Because it's so important that you're constantly, culture is a living, breathing thing, right? It, whenever right. you let it down, it's like, it, you, you'd be surprised how fast things go south, right? Go, go really totally. Let's hear about know. Now that things are more normal, quote unquote, how have you been able to hire more people on your team, scale out your team, delegate, oversee and manage this newer operation that you that you're that you created? Right. You know, when I started this business, I think that you get so lost in the weeds with just the product and, and how you're going to market it that I feel like for a lot of entrepreneurs, cause I've talked to a lot of other small business owners, the, the management piece is probably one of the hardest. And it's one that I don't think, yeah, I, I didn't see coming, right. Because as the business grew and I needed help, I started to bring in more team members and, and, and that was at, at the time before, um, you know, the pandemic too. Right. So that was a lot easier because everybody, you know, we could meet and we, to, to just work in person was a whole other ball game than, you know, remote working. And so I think for us, at least like everybody that works at Brooklyn Deli, it's remote. And I've kind of tried to work at cultivating culture and just like collaboration through different means. So whether it be like making sure that we do face-to-face -face meetings, whether it be like on Zoom or Google with the different team members we have, and also bringing team members together in that sense, because I, I want people to feel like they're part of something and not just like working in a silo. And so I think that has been definitely a learning experience for me, as well as just kind of getting feedback 
and doing formal types of reviews with team members. Since management is like kind of, you know, it's a new thing for me. I need also, I need that guidance as well. And so I have learned so much just from the people that I work with in terms of like, you know, how to delegate, how to maybe like let people do their thing and like giving people freedom in a sense. And I, and I feel like I don't want to be working or managing people in a vacuum either. And so doing these kinds of reviews that are like 180 reviews has been like a large piece of like how I feel like I've developed talent within Brooklyn Deli, but also my own ways of, of managing people on the team. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about your first hire. I mean, that must be nerve wracking for you. What was, what was yeah. the first position that you need to hire and what kind of questions were you asking this first person? Yeah. So I guess the first person that I had with me was doing kind of more actually like social media and she was, I guess, kind of like came on as a consultant in a sense, but she was really great. And she, she came like on the team to kind of set frameworks up because I kind of didn't know how we should kind of organize things. And she set everything up so that I could hire people to kind of take on a lot of the the pieces because I didn't even know where to begin. And that was definitely a learning experience for me, just because I was kind of like in a realm that I was somewhat familiar with because I came from the marketing realm, but like she was coming from it from like a very social media aspect. So I was like learning from her as well. And like, and, and, and like many other hires at Brooklyn Deli, she came through a referral through a friend in, in my community. And I think that for the most part, I feel like for a lot of the people that I have hired, that it has been a very successful type of relationship. It has come through my community. And so I, I think that is one thing that I feel like a lot of people say like, oh, once you have a job posting, like, you know, just put it out on LinkedIn or put it out. You know, my thing is like definitely tap your network first, because the, those are the people that most likely already maybe know about your brand, may even use your products and would feel passionate passionate because you guys have friends in common or, or people in common. So that's one of the things that, that I learned when I realized that that first hire, we came through my community, but I had other subsequent hires that had come, you know, through other means that it didn't work the same way. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think community is an underrated part of driving a successful company, right? You need to tap your community. Also, the, the benefit of tapping into your community is that they know kind of what your mission is, what you're working on. And especially at an early stage company, every single hire dictates your culture right off the bat. Right. 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 Totally. I know. It's, it, it is. And another thing that I find interesting is that like not hiring for people also that you feel like you're just, you could be friends with in a way, but yeah. really hiring for the right person for the job too, in a sense. I feel like that's another thing that I kind of had to learn over time is that, you know, like, it's fine if you're like buddy, buddy, but it's like, can this person do the job? Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I have a lot to say in that topic as well. I feel like, yeah. People that you're buddy buddy with, it's harder to sort of be a boss, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, now it's like a mixture of boss and friendship. You're telling them 
hey man, like I really need this done. <laughs> like, right, right. Yeah, no, it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, congratulations on all your success, being able to scale, being able to get a Whole Foods, building a sustainable business. Let's switch over and talk a little more about you as an author. You know, I know earlier that you briefly mentioned of you publishing a book. Right. What was that process like? Was that before or after you started your company? As you mentioned earlier, <laughs> more chronologically in your timeline, you mentioned that you were a food blogger first. Right. Walk us through yeah. this exact timeline so we have a clear idea what your journey was like. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, the journey to get to the the cookbook was an interesting one. It was basically like I had started doing this food blog, right? But I was still working a job on the side. I was doing marketing full time. And at the time, I just wanted to document my family's recipes. But what ended up happening is that it started to become this way for me to just like, I guess, like, look at my identity as an Indian American through the lens of food. So what I ended up doing was like, I was taking these traditional cooking techniques I was learning from my family, but then I started applying them to like local produce, or I would like, you know, different cuisines that I was eating in the city. And then as time went on, more people started to read the blog besides my mother. And I like, you know, connected with local farmers. And I started to develop menus that use their produce. I was working with local chefs and we were coming up with pop-up dinners. So I worked with, you know, my friend Diana Kwan, who's like a Chinese cookbook author. And we did a Chinese Indian supper club for a while that was called Tangra. And so I was doing all these kind of like interesting, different things. And it caught the eye of a publisher because I was posting on social media and I was still writing my blog. And they were like, you know, we're interested to kind of like see what a book would be like from you just about all the things that you're doing. And um, so then that was kind of like the first kind of like seed. But at the time, I wasn't really sure as to like what I wanted to write about. So I kind of put it on the back burner and just like explored. And I think that's one thing that is cool about like when you have a hobby, but you also have like a full-time job because it really gives you this like freedom to explore. If somebody was like, Hey, do you want to do a pop-up? I'm like, sure, I'll do it. You know, because there's no real, there's no real risk in doing it. All you're doing is really learning and seeing like what it is that you like to do. And so I kept on doing that kind of stuff. And I was, I started teaching cooking classes and I started really getting into South Indian cooking that my mom, my mom is from Bangalore and it was that specific type of cooking that I grew up eating. And, and then that was when I started to kind of like sense that this is what I wanted to write the book about. So I basically like, I got an agent and, and that was also through my network. I just kind of like reached out to different people that I knew had written cookbooks. And I asked them if, you know, they would kind of, you know, recommend their agent. And, and then I started talking to some, and I knew this idea like I it had crystallized in my head just from like, just the experience of doing it, that I wrote like an 80 page proposal, gave it to, you know, the agent and she shopped it around. And there were a couple of publishers that were interested. And this took, you know, this took time though. And finally in 2014 is when I started writing the cookbook and I, decided to launch Brooklyn Deli, which I don't recommend doing both of those things at the same time. But I start, I wrote the book over a three-year period. I did not have a dishwasher. It was definitely a lot. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot. And I, I felt like it was, 
I mean, it was an interesting experience because from blogging to writing a book, you definitely hone these recipe writing skills and these recipe testing skills that I feel like I still apply at Brooklyn Deli. Um, And so then the book kind of like came to be. And I think one thing that I learned also from writing the book is that, and I think that a lot of, a lot of people coming from my point of view kind of run into this authentic kind of conversation, right? Where it's like, people are like, well, is it authentic what you're doing? Right. And, and I kind of like got into that trap a little bit when I started writing the book where I was chasing down this quintessential recipe, right? And these are all family recipes. And I just remember at one point, like realizing that every person in my family made this one recipe differently. And if anything, that like freed me up so much because you, I, I just realized that it's like authentic, like throw that word out the window. First of all, it's like really authentic to the home cook or authentic to whoever is making it. And that's, that kind of set me on my way for how I wrote Vibrant India. It became a book that was very much founded in, you know, these, these recipes from my family, but it it had my own take on them. So I was using local ingredients or I was meshing different cuisines with, with these traditional techniques. And I took a lot of that learning with me to Brooklyn Deli and it has freed me up. I feel like to create what I want to create if I like it, (laughs) you know, and not, and not think about what other people think. I like that. I like that a lot. You know, I think with food, especially as you mentioned the word authentic, you know, know, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard to nail it down. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it actually is, right. right? Because like what I think is authentic is what how my mom makes it, right? And for example, totally. I'm I'm Vietnamese American. For me to go back to like a Vietnamese town, little Saigon or something, and eat Vietnamese food, I'm like, why is it? Why does it look different? <laughs> you know? Right? You're like, this isn't right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think it's it, yeah. It really is up to the person creating the meal. Whatever brings them comfort, right? I think as long as the baseline is sort of the same and you kind of add your own flavor to it, then it's right. whatever brings you comfort and that brings unity and bond through food. Totally. Exactly. And I also feel like it frees people up, you know? It's just like you don't have to prescribe to, you know, what other people think about, you know, what is authentic or what is traditional. Because I think that, you know, the best innovations in cuisine have come from people innovating on what it is that they have in their kitchen, too, right? I mean, I feel like a lot of our parents, you know, they came to this country and probably didn't have a lot of the same ingredients that they grew up eating, you know, and just kind of, you know, home, home cooks are so just like, um, just so creative. I feel like a lot of times home cooks are not given as much credit as they should be, but like, I just remember my mom just like, you know, applying like these South Indian ingredients to, you know, just like what she would find at the grocery store and it worked, you know, it's like zucchini. She never ate that growing up, but she (sighs) can make it taste real good. (laughs) Yeah. I I like that a lot too. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is the awesome power of like having immigrant parents. It's like we are in a new country, the greens are different, they look kind of different, but they make it similar enough to what they're used to. And oftentimes right. that's that's the birth of new cuisine, right? You actually, I don't know, I don't know if you had an opportunity to, but when I look into the history of food, it's like it feels like it's through 
meeting people and like going to different countries, going to different places and like merging what you think tastes good and what brings comfort and creating brand new cuisines, right? So I Totally. think the idea of being authentic to one dish is impossible, right? Right. It's impossible. I think so too. <laughs> so the so next part of the podcast, I want to hear about your goals. What are your goals for your company over the next five to 10 years? And what do you hope to accomplish from a personal growth level into a professional level? I mean, from a very high level, it's that I want to show people that, you know, Indian cuisine can be made with premium ingredients and it can be mainstream, right? I mean, a lot of people, I feel like when I first started Brooklyn Deli and I was like, this is an Indian American brand. They were just like, what is that? Right. I mean, and I want to kind of turn that idea on its head and, you know, make people realize that coming from the second gen perspective, there's value in what we do. And I think that we have a lot to bring to the table. And I think that Brooklyn Deli is a way for us to do that as well as to celebrate culture and cuisine coming from a South Asian perspective. And, you know, I would love to see, you know, Brooklyn Deli on, on shelves at, you know, every grocery store in America, you know, growing up, it's like, I never really felt like represented or seen. And, you know, and I hope that for South Asians that come in the next generations, when they see Brooklyn Dolly, they feel proud about their culture. And they feel proud that there there's a brand that's representing them and who they are and the flavors that they grew up with. Yeah, I really like that goal and perspective too. And, and I think what's great about our generation is that we're really pushing for representation, right? We're pushing for visibility because frankly, I feel like that's a common theme among all Asian Americans, right? It's We're just overlooked. And for the longest time growing up, I think a lot of us were embarrassed about our cuisine. Oh my God, it smells different or whatever it is. But America, for good or for bad, is going through awakening right now where they love Asian food. <laughs> you love Asian flavors, which Right. is great. You know, which is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know? totally. Yeah. But you were like, where were you in middle school when I was bringing my, my food from home? And like, Why is it made fun of, you know? right. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Well, Chetra, I think it's awesome having you on today's podcast. I'm going to end with one question. And that question is, if you can restart any part of your journey, what would what would you have done differently? That's a good question. I feel like I would probably have done a little bit more research. <laughs> I feel like, you know, you get so excited about an idea and you just want to put it out there. But I, you know, I didn't really do a lot of research about category or anything like that in supermarkets or even, you know, how to go about it. And I feel like if If I could do it again, I would probably slow it down a little bit and just kind of like be a little bit more methodical about like how, how we did our launch, not take too long, but just a little bit, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're highly successful right now, right? And it's awesome hearing that perspective too about being more methodical. But I feel like most entrepreneurs kind of dive head deep into it and then figure out that, oh, I got to swim or sink. <laughs> Right, right. I know the passion, it, it, it leads all of us. Yes, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely agree. Well, I
Thank you for that answer. So how can our listeners, listeners find out more about you and about your company? So on social, we're at Brooklyn Deli and then we're at brooklyndeli.com. <laughs> awesome. We'll include all that in the show notes. But thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Of course. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.